You're listening to the Mind Your Own Revisions podcast, episode 19. Welcome to the Mind Your Own Revisions podcast, where it's all about preventing and overcoming burnout in academia, as well as fostering mental and emotional well-being. I'm Özgün Ünver, your host, burnout and well-being coach for academics. My mission is to inspire, educate, and empower you on your quest to find true and lasting resilience and fulfillment, both in your work and in your life. Let's dive in. Hello, academics, ex-academics, Altaks. Welcome to a new episode of the Mind Your Own Revisions podcast. Today, I have a very special guest from across the pond, from all the way from Canada, Kumsal uh, Tekirdağ Koşar. Kumsal is also uh, from Turkey originally, like myself, but uh, I found her uh, on, on LinkedIn through her advocacy work around mental health. And then we, uh, we became closer in a way sharing our life experiences with each other and she has been so kind to join me today to share her experiences around mental health and in academia as a as an academic as an ex-academic or alt-academic at the moment if I can say that so thank you for coming on Kumsal uh welcome to mind your own revisions Thank you, Asgian. It's it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's so exciting. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm also very, very excited because I find your work very inspiring and very compassionate, just like it's supposed to be for, uh, for someone who is working around mental health. So thank you for doing what you do as well. So... Go ahead. That's so kind of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So I would like to introduce you a bit. Well, I will introduce you shortly, but then I will ask you to introduce yourself, right? So um, Kumsal has done her PhD on cell uh, biology. So he's a exact scientist uh, in a way, different than myself. I'm a social scientist uh, from education. But uh, now, although she hasn't stopped doing research altogether, she's transitioning to uh, becoming a social worker in Canada. And it's a very exciting route for her. I, I know and I can imagine also uh, because she's studying from scratch again to do this work and for many of us academics, this kind of big career change is a bit scary for some people. Or uh, I can imagine that some people say, oh my God, what a, what a courage you have, or you're starting over and everything. So I would like to talk a bit about that. Uh, so would you like to introduce yourself a bit to the listeners? Sure, yeah. Um... As, as you mentioned, I have a PhD in cell biology. I, I, I graduated in 2015. 
And then I moved to US um, for a postdoctoral research fellowship in New York. And um, during my work uh, there at the postdoctoral fellow, I kind of um, had a, a good journey, I would say, first of all, <laughs> as a researcher and I guess learning more about what I can do with a PhD. Because I was also thinking that once you have your PhD, you're kind of set on um, doing a postdoc and finding an, you know, position in, in a university, either in Turkey, back in my home country or in the United States. So that was kind of my understanding or goal at, at the time as well. But as I went through my training, I realized that um, with a PhD, you can do so, so many things so many skills that the uh, PhD holders possess and you can kind of use them anywhere that you want. So that was kind of, a, I guess, an epiphany for me. I never thought of like that outside the box. And yeah, my, my slight uh, transition out of academia didn't come at once. And you mentioned that it, the idea of changing uh, being very scary. And I have to assure our listeners that it is still scary for me. <laughs> Even though I'm in the midst of it, I feel like this has been a long process of um, trying to figure out what I really want to do, uh, not just with my PhD, but in my life, like how to... Um, find meaning and how to uh, work with community and give back to them. So that's kind of where I always wanted to see myself. And being a scientist working in a lab, um, I was really not working with people, individuals directly. So that was kind of my yearning, I would call. Like always I try to find ways to include myself in committees or find myself initiatives around wellness, mental health. So I started doing that a lot during my postdoc. And that kind of gave me this flavor of what it would look like to work with people, work with individuals directly. So once I got the taste of it, I felt like I was really missing a lot personally, even though I love science and I'm, a, as you said, I'm a hardcore pure STEM scientists working in a lab with cells, with animals and doing experimental work. So I kind of missed that human connection, not just working around people, but with people, for people. So once I realized that, uh, it was hard to unknow that, you know? So I had to kind of make a decision to see whether I'll really shift my career towards working with people. And I started looking for ways on how to do that. So yeah, that's kind of how it all started, the whole shift, I guess, yeah. Yeah, but among all of the things that you could choose to do, you decided to become a social worker. And I would like to explain that a bit for some people who are listening. Well, um, before when we talked the uh, first time off the record, uh, yeah, when Kumsal said, "Okay, I'm, I'm studying to become a social worker," I I thought, you know, like 
just like people in Belgium, social worker is someone who's working in an NGO, who's working, you know, to help people to organize things for uh, people with the less chances. And yeah, we have, I have personally, people like myself. But then uh, Kumsal clarified it, saying that she's going to become a therapist or, or um, uh, yeah, someone who can do therapy among other things. And that's very interesting for me as someone living in continental Europe where that role is reserved for people with a master's degree at least in, in clinical psychology. So could you also give us the a bit of a definition of what you are going to do and what does a, like a so-called social worker do in in Canada or yes I realize like I understand that it's um it's kind of different how social work um I guess role is in different countries and I even remember now that you're saying how the role in Europe I remembered in Turkey I never heard of this role because again in Turkey similar to Europe um, doing psychotherapy is a designated um, kind of task for psychologists or psychiatrists and so to my experience and which was really re liberating to learn social work is a profession like um, in North America I would say in United States and Canada, the experience was, I think it's quite similar how they function. They are, I, I'm not sure the exact statistic, but I would say like half of the all mental health practitioners are social workers. Like I might be wrong with the statistic then, but overwhelming majority of mental health practitioners are social workers, which means social workers can work in settings, as you mentioned, like NGOs or hospitals, or in places like community centers that where they can help um, marginalized or vulnerable populations to um, access to resources, let's say, or advocate on their behalf mm -hmm. and also conduct counseling with them, like um, not necessarily therapy, but like short-term counseling. So social workers is like work in a variety of tasks in different settings. And in Canada specifically, it's a regulated profession, which means if you want to call yourself a social worker, you need um, uh, either a bachelor's level degree or a master's of social work, which is the program that I'm in. Mm -hmm. And once you um, complete this program, you graduate with generic skills, which means you have some interview skills, some advocacy skills, some um, research skills. And then you continue your training to become a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. So that's a track that you can take, which is called kind of working in the micro level. Like social workers can work in three levels, um, macro, meso, or micro. And I'm targeting to work with micro level while learning some, um, I would say, fundamental skills for different therapeutic modalities like CBT, cognitive behavior therapy or EFT, emotionally focused therapy. Like that's a track that you can take. And because I would like to work directly with people, I plan to go to that, um, that place, that um, track. 
but it's all, you know, it changes and evolves as you go. So I'm not also against on working macro level, which um, it kind of consists of working more on the policy level. Like you work in communities or organizations for changes, um, advocate for clients. So that's more of a, a bigger level. And I don't think the levels are separatable. But as you said, my goal is to become a psychotherapist with further training. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. I think that it's a, it's a great chance to be able to become a therapist from another uh, track, educational track, let's say. It's a, it's something very interesting that you guys have in uh, North uh, America. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> Having talked about you wanting to work on this micro level with people, uh, hopefully as a as a psychotherapist, among other things, I would like to ask why? Where did this desire come from? So could you tell us a bit about like your reasons why uh, embarking on this journey and also your own experience? with um, mental health and receiving this kind of help as well? That's a great question. And I, I see two, two parts of it, like why social worker and my own mental health journey. So the desire to work with people, I guess um, it comes uh, to me since I was a child. Like I, I always wanted to pursue this track. And as you said, in Europe, in Turkey, it's quite um, siloed, I would say, like it's boxed. Like if you're in one track, it's really hard for you to switch. And if you're in, um, let's say, math and science track at high school, it's the system doesn't allow you to become a psychologist. It's designed that way. So I always desire to work with people and I always had this passion for psychology, but for some reason, <laughs> I was not able to pursue it in the uh, like graduate level, undergrad or graduate. I tried, but it's just the, the way system design is not allowing that kind of switch. Once you're in one track, you have to follow it. And that's kind of one of the issues, I guess, in that kind of system, like not allowing people to reroute, reconsider what they want in life because we all decide these kind of um, big career decisions when we are so young. And when we try to change, when it's so difficult, I just feel like it's not fair. Exactly. So it's, it's great that in North America, there is a way at least. And I, I would say I never left that hope in me to find a way to change my track, even though I seemingly doubled down on my PhD, my postdoc. I always had it at the back of my mind, but I felt like this is impossible. Like in Turkey, it was really not possible. And I, at the time I had no idea how things work in the United States or Canada, but in the United States where I was really, you know, going deep in my academic career, I came across a social worker in my own mental health journey. I was a new immigrant um, dealing with a lot of family issues, isolation, adaptation. And as a you know, native Turkish 
woman in, in the United States, I had a lot of struggles in my first year and, and those never ended actually. But yeah, I thought um, maybe it's, it's a good thing to ask for support. And I've been always very open to, um, to ask for support, for counseling, for therapy throughout my, I guess, uh, life. So in the United States, looking for a mental health practitioner was no, not different for me. It's what I always did in Turkey. And that's what I did there. And to my luck, I came across a social worker. So I really didn't know that they could do psychotherapy. But that's how I kind of figured out that I, um, I can go for therapy to a social worker. And our work together, which was an extensive, very long time therapy work, was, I would say, um, I guess, transformative. Like, mm -hmm. I really had the chance to really deconstruct some of my beliefs, some of the uh, ideas that I hold for myself and really question like where these ideas are coming from. Let's say I was working on academia, working in academia as a postdoc, but I started asking myself, do I really want to work here? Is this really what I would um, like to do with my life? Those kind of questions were really as a result of my work with her kind of indirect result. And that kind of led me to feel like I have a choice. I can choose to become something else. And I knew this was not going to be easy. But having that choice was, um, I guess, what I needed. Because I didn't feel like I had it in Turkey. So kind of having that choice in the United States, at least it was there if I wanted to do. Like I was able to go back to graduate school as a um, MSW student like I'm doing now uh, and I could become a psychotherapist like knowing that that choice exists was super liberating I would say and frankly I was not able to pursue that in the United States because I was on a visa mm -hmm. and my visa was tied to my employment so I was not um very um, flexible or free to do what I want. So yeah. kind of try to um, find different ways. Like as I'm talking to you now, I'm realizing I never gave up that hope that I would find a way. And I, that's kind of my personal motto, like finding a way, like no matter how impossible something seems, we can find a way, like we cannot know it ahead of time. It's just, unravels in front of us if we keep on course that's I guess what I did it was not possible in the United States but then we decided to immigrate to Canada and now that I'm here um, without a visa as a permanent resident I'm able to do that switch like go back to school get my MSW and everything so now looking back everything comes together nicely yeah <laughs> Wow. And just like you said, I, I think we, a, a lot of us academics can, can relate to what you said, like finding a way, because that's what we are trained to do, right? As scientists, as academics, as anyone who does a PhD, I am sure you come to a point where, you know, you're so stuck. There's just 
okay, it's gonna crumble down anytime now, and then nothing is moving forward. And that's still persevering in the belief that, okay, I will find a way. And that's maybe one of the transferable skills that you were talking about. Like as a as a scientist, I can do a lot outside of academia because I have like so many things that I can take with me there, right? Yes. But the, the other thing is that, yeah, I'm very happy that you mentioned this. Actually, I've been meaning to do an episode about this. Maybe it will come uh, in the coming months. The, the experience of being a migrant, being an immigrant, and uh, the isolation that you mentioned, and the, the adaptation period, and all of the all of the like mental health struggles that brings with it, because I think many academics can relate to that. In academia today, it's very very difficult to yeah get to anywhere without having to move at some point in, in your life to another country uh work somewhere else so many of us experience this and i think it's very it can be a very heavy experience for many people it was for me uh and that triggered a long bout of depression also for myself like first few years of the phd again therapy therapy also for myself so i can totally relate to that so thank you for bringing that up uh, that's a very important thing to um, acknowledge, to recognize. I agree. And also, it's, I think, important for people to speak up um, about mental health, their own journey, no matter how hard it is, to, to address the stigma. Because still today, even though we are talking now, we are very open about our long-term therapy journeys, the mental health stigma is is there it's um we are slowly tackling it slowly addressing it but it's still there and it's in so many levels personal level uh when we go to a healthcare professional let's say how they treat us if we bring out you know mental health issues if we bring our mental health issues to service in the work workplace like those kind of instances we can realize that there is still a stigma around it and people are perceived um weak incompetent for some reason if they bring up their issues which needs to be addressed i think and that's that's one of the reasons why i try to be very vocal about mental health on social media because i truly truly believe it's a strength that we take care of our mental health. We speak about it and it's as important as our physical health and we need to keep um, protecting it, preserving it, not like shovel it out to somewhere that it doesn't exist. That's not true. It's not just physical health. It's a holistic way of seeing things. Yeah. So yeah. You're right. I mean, with many people, well, I don't want to generalize this to academics, but let's say to high achieving people. So one of the things I observe is that, yeah, you have to like in, in Dutch, they say, bite your tongue, uh, no, bite your, bite your teeth, and just go through it. Um, like nothing is easy in life. The road you're on, the path you're on is not supposed to be easy. You just go through, you just do it. 
And the, as you said, the, the mental health aspect of things is just, okay, that, that's for, that's for CCs. That's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly true. Like in this, I think I felt in um, working in my, during my PhD in Turkey a lot, like pushing through, like never taking a break, just pushing through every other adversity that you face and as if it's um, strength to do that, which is completely wrong, but that's kind of the way uh, culture is structured. And in the US, I remember how fast and um, I would call it hustling, like you are always in the hustle, you're always rising to the occasion they call, you, you keep pushing, you never take a break. And frankly, if you do take a break, someone else will take your position. Like you become redundant, which is kind of your kind of the system penalizing you taking a break, prioritizing self-care. And I feel like in academia, this is so pervasive. It's such a common way of functioning and uh, seeing people less committed, let's say, if they want to take a break, if they would prioritize their mental health it's slowly shifting like more and more people are speaking up and I feel like it has to come from perhaps top to bottom like if people in a, a higher authority power position if they speak up having those challenges it makes such a difference it just trickles down but if you are um in a position where you're a student, where you're, I don't know, where you're a marginalized member of the community, like an immigrant and speaking up saying, I have mental health issues. It's just very hard for you to address that because of the level of power you hold in the system. So we really need people uh, recognizing that this is, um, this is a systemic issue that it needs to change. We need to prioritize mental health as we do physical health. Indeed. And uh, that, that brings another question to my mind, just spontaneously. But I don't know if you have an answer to this, but what have you observed so far regarding mental health among academics? Like in your academic career so far, were you able to like pinpoint certain patterns, certain ways uh, people talk about mental health we, we, we touched upon this but can you give us more concrete examples like the the actual from actual lives of actual people um i would i, I guess start with um sharing my observation and this is again a disclaimer this is my personal observation it's completely subjective how i experience things and um, Turkey and U.S. academia, and I felt like mental health is not a topic that people discuss, like discussing your mental well-being, how you're doing, how you're feeling, going into the depths of it, it's just not something um, that is discussed. That's one of the things I think makes this a very systemic issue, like if you don't acknowledge the presence of something we can't address it like the importance of mental health I feel like um, there were systemic organizational issues where I was working in after 2018 like there was a student mental health center uh, getting established 
um, in my postdoctoral um, like position for the entire institution because I realized at that moment a lot of students were bringing mental health concerns and students were medical students and PhD students like they were under an immense stress and there were also some suicide um, cases due to the stress so the the system responded to this I would say acute crisis of mental health and it's not just this institution I think it was across the nation like everyone is realizing more and more that mental health is not something we can avoid. Everyone has it. It's not the same as mental illness. So there was a response from the institution establishing this center. So I felt that people were getting a bit more comfortable discussing what it is, why it's important, and what if we don't address it? Like what happens if you don't take care of our mental health? I mean, the extreme cases is like extreme distress and even, God forbid, the suicide, um, the case, which we obviously do not want it to happen. So in order to prevent those cases from happening, we need to really come back and see, okay, how we can support people, academics, and academics, I mean, <clears throat> students, researchers, faculty, like, everyone in the in the institution how we can support them mm-hmm. so I felt like there was a bit more uh, open conversation starting but it's so recent like two three years ago when I was there and I was very happy to get involved with that because I'm I can say it's too late to start that conversation mm-hmm. it should have been already there yeah but I guess it's it's you know late than never you know uh, and yeah I I feel like more people are thinking about it, but like talking about it and um, sharing it openly, we, we still have a long way to yeah. go. And just like you mentioned, this was a, if I understand correctly, this was an initiative, especially for students, right? So not yes. for academics, not for uh, professors, not for not for faculty, the postdocs were part of it because we are in a kind of very tricky place. I mean, it was that institution and I have a feeling that it's also the way <clears throat> the postdocs are treated. Sometimes we are called students, which is completely wrong. We don't, we are not students, but we are not also faculty. So we were in this middle mm-hmm. position where no one <laughs> was able to place us correctly. So we were able to use that center but uh, faculty had to find their own resources and they were not really yeah. part of this initiative. That also shows a lot, right? Yeah, well, the, 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 the limbo that you were in as a postdoc sounds like the limbo we are in as PhD uh, candidates in, in Belgium, I could say. Like some people are like, oh, it's a PhD student, but then no, these people are researchers that are actually conducting research or doing work and uh, most of the time getting paid for it as well but in the form of scholarship and not salary and all of that but having said that uh, in my university I didn't have access to these uh, services as a PhD candidate these uh, services were only available to bachelor's and master's students so I had to find my own way as well um, though 
in two moments of crisis, I can say that they they took me for for like one like urgent consultation kind of thing before uh, directing me to someone else. But indeed, I um, that's a bit of a yeah, the issue with access and how system uh, kind of categorizes people who can use a service, who is eligible, who is not, and exactly. how that marginalizes certain people. If, if they're in a certain position, they are not really eligible, but there is no place that can address their needs. So, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry you had that experience. Well, you live and learn. No, uh, there, there could also be another way of looking at this, saying that ah, yeah, as a, as a like a staff member, to keep my privacy, maybe some people wouldn't be comfortable going to the services that are provided by the university. But in my opinion, knowing that such a place exists, that already puts your mind at ease. Because otherwise, especially now and after such a long time after in this corona pandemic period, finding a mental health care provider is such a huge issue in Belgium. The waiting lists are at least several months long. If you need help right now, the earliest you can get it is like four months or something for some people, including like life-threatening uh, mental health issues, including like eating disorders and all of that, right? Even these people who need to become inpatient have to wait, uh, yeah, due to all these um, waiting lists and all. But anyway, that's... Yeah, that's I, I hear you saying, and in Canada as well, that's, that's been my, part of my experience and it's so frustrating to see all, um, like when you inquire, people saying, oh, my practice is full, I have a wait list. And then the, uh, what's that? The community services are all full or booked and they're wait lists and you have to pay out of pockets. It, it shows us what system values of mental health actually. Exactly. It's also being out of pocket for, for mental health care, right? For psycho to go to a psychologist, a social worker in Belgium, it is also like that. Oh, that's that's a luxury, as if it's a luxury, as if it is this uh yeah, it's an optional thing. Going yeah. to a doctor for a physical thing is not optional, but exactly. <laughs> and, and I think it shows like I'm, I'm grateful that you mentioned this, uh, the, your experience from Belgium, because that's been my experience in Canada as well, because um, Canada, as you might know, has a universal healthcare system, which means you don't need to pay for your family doctor visits, like most of the procedures done. You pay for the prescriptions and some other things, but you have a universal healthcare. But I realized uh, that it doesn't include mental health care, which was to my shock. I was, I was, I remember being very shocked seeing that this is not covered mm. and you need to have a private insurance to supplement and pay and get reimbursed. And it's a cumbersome process to, to do that. You pay for a practitioner, then you get reimbursed for it. 
and you still have to pay a portion depending on how good your insurance is. So I feel like it's, as you, as you just said, it's a luxury and some people who are um, privileged enough to, to have a private insurance uh, to afford it. And it shouldn't be this way. Mental health should be free for all. And this is one of the really, I guess, uh, and I see my fist coming up. Uh, this is the point that I'm very strong about. And that's why I love the role of being a social worker, a future social worker, because I can advocate for these kind of changes. And maybe I wouldn't see in my lifetime, but I will be part of pushing that change and always saying, hey, this, this needs to be free for all. This is not the way things should be, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a very noble thing to do also. Just like, just like uh, yeah, everyone else who did that, that for us, for our generation before us to pave the way for the, 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 all the things that we can enjoy right now as human beings and uh, Definitely. Yeah, Definitely. as women as well. That's, that's yeah. another thing. So, yeah. so um, we were also, let's go back to your career transition. Um, and I want to ask you, like the, how does it feel to study again, like once more for yet another degree? <laughs> after a long time and uh, how how are your feelings around that wow that's an amazing question that's that's actually a reflection that I'm going through daily because it's as you said it's a big change and I kind of realize myself um, sometimes feeling into that rabbit hole thinking, why am I doing this? I have my final degree, you know, what's the purpose of my um, like daily activities? Like I go through that existential crisis sometimes <laughs> and I come out of it saying, I'm really doing this, I guess, for myself. Like I felt like I did PhD for several reasons, including my love of science, like curiosity. I wanted to learn. I wanted to advance myself. And also the fact that I had a funding, like it gave me um, a, like a scholarship, like a salary, a place to live and a community to belong. So it was like the whole package, but it really didn't serve me in the way that I would um, see myself uh, in my life like it didn't give me meaning I guess so when I go through that existential crisis saying why am I going back to school why I'm studying again and it's hard to be a student again in your mid-30s like with also a toddler like it's it's a complicated mix but I remind myself daily that I'm doing this for myself and I feel like Having that kind of um, understanding why we are doing what we are doing and really doing it for ourselves is so crucial. And it doesn't make it easy. I mean, I, I wouldn't say this is easy. I'm, you know, acing through everything without an effort. On the contrary, it takes a lot of planning because I have a like um, family life to balance and I'm a newcomer in Canada with little social support here. But it's a challenge, daily challenge sometimes to make things happen, like um, go to my courses, even though they're online right now, like 
find ways to um, learn new things because I'm a beginner in this field and engage with people, create a network. And it's overwhelming at times, I wouldn't lie. But I remind myself that I'm doing this for myself. And honestly, I love being a student in social work. The concepts that I'm learning, they're from life. Like um, they are sometimes daily topics like political topics or something else like policy related things that I can make sense of, I can think about and I can contribute to my daily life thinking about them. And also learning about all those uh, therapeutic modalities, like parenting strategies. It's it's like part of life. And that was kind of my um, issue with science, I guess. Like I loved working in the lab, doing like cell work, doing experiments with uh, animals. But it was like a long way to translate that knowledge to people. Like I was working on a disease and a neurodegenerative disease, but in such a distant level that I never came in contact with the Parkinson's patient. And that's where I want to be. Like I would like to work with people who are experiencing that disease. I mean, I know the molecular things going on in their brain, which is great, but I want to be helpful to them when they're alive, not after they're diseased and, you know, analyzing their tissues. It's just not the way I see my life going forward. So when I doubt myself or have these, you know, um, problems daily, I remind myself that I'm doing this for me and I will um, find a way. Yeah. Yeah. I can so relate to what you're saying right now. I, I had like a same idea transitioning out of uh, academia, at least the academic work itself. Yeah. And, um, and now comes a question that I ask almost everyone who comes to onto the podcast. It's about burnout. And uh, I am myself a burnout coach, a burnout survivor, and uh, helping people overcome burnout and prevent burnout has become my uh, mission in life after going through that experience as an academic. So a bit similarity there with you. And I've been wondering, like, have you uh, have you had this experience of burnout or it's, you can call it burnout? Of course, there's a lot of, uh, let's say confusion around the word burnout, the diagnosis of burnout, especially in North America, I guess, because in Europe, it's more like clearly defined, in my opinion, here in Belgium, when you say burnout, half of the people will understand you probably, okay, maybe that's an optimistic estimate. But anyway, people will know, at, at least medical doctors know that it's a condition. Uh, it is recognized as a, as a thing in health. So would you like to share your uh, experiences around that? Sure. Um, well, I feel like I, I experienced burnout during my PhD, but I, I never called it out as a burnout. I felt that that was part of the process. And I guess I was under the impression that that was how it's supposed to be. Uh -huh. And I, how I experienced was like, um, 
constant working, like never even taking a vacation or break and not having anything in your life, but just your PhD. And after a certain point, you become so consumed with those um, experiments, those results, and you become like detached from real life, right? The, the real things going on, because that's your priority. You are so focused on what you're doing. And even though if you're exhausted, and I remember I was not being able to say, hey, I need a break. And I remember I had a condition in my knee. I had like a little tear when I was uh, during the latest stages. And that was my excuse to take a break because I was not able to articulate saying, hey, I'm feeling so depressed. And I, I remember take, going to therapy, taking antidepressant medication, but those were not reasons to say, hey, I need to slow down. This is really not good for my mental health because I was not, first of all, that strong. And it's in a different culture, we need to look from that cultural lens. Like in Turkish culture, saying that openly, it has a lot of stigma around it. Yeah, like you're just lazy then, you're just lazy. <laughs> You're lazy, you're making excuses, you're not tough enough, you're not made for this. And you can you can hear these messages from everywhere, from your mentor to your family, to your peers, and you will be further isolated. So you just don't speak up in that way. But I was kind of brave, I would say, to go to therapy. Like regularly, I was taking antidepressant medication, but I was not able to slow down. So my physical health, and I, I really want to stress this, that the mental health and physical health connection, it's so intricate. And it's, um, I would put it this way, I guess, if we don't take care of our mental health for a certain amount of time, and it the burnout and exhaustion becomes chronic, our body slows us down. And it says, hey, hey you need to stop. So we start having these symptoms, uh, like we, we have a sprain on our ankle, we bruise our knee, you know, we feel a headache, back pain, you name it. So our physical health takes it over, I think. And then you just have to stop because at some point for me, I remember it was impossible to continue. And I remember going, being completely wasted. Like I was out for a month, I guess. And I was not able to even relax. I was consumed of being behind, not being able to work. And I was not able to just, um, I guess, understand that experience. Now I'm looking back. I guess that was burnout <laughs> because there's no easy explanation for that. So I have those experiences a lot during my career. I think during the pandemic also, I felt like I was really exhausted and I couldn't continue anymore. Like I, I couldn't know how to, you know, further my research, but it was hard for me to bring this up with my, you know, workplace again. It's just tough to have that conversations. And it also depends on the culture of the workplace. And I had supervisors who were like supportive in many ways. But again, the culture of that, um, I guess, work or institution, it needs to be addressed in burnout because individual aids 
like, okay, take a couple days or do this, do that. They're like band-aids. Like they help, but you, you come back like feeling less overwhelmed and then you get again at the same, you know, place quickly. Exactly. So I guess we need something else to address it, but it's a long journey. Yeah, exactly. Just like you said, uh, you, you remove yourself from the situation, but if the circumstances don't change or you don't come in with the, a set of boundaries where you go like, that is a no, that is a no, that is a no, then I'm if so those glad. things are not respected yeah. at the end, then you end up in the same place. That's that's the thing. That's so true. That's what was passing through my mind. I was thinking of what if we change the culture? What if the place changes and we internalize those behaviors? Like we have a way of functioning. It's the mindset we carry like over and over, year after year, we are there. So it's also that, like changing your place and then I guess changing our mindset. That's even harder. Like that I'm still struggling with. And I'm trying to put, like, as you said, boundaries saying, okay, I'm not doing this at this time. This is my family time. But that kind of, I guess, self-understanding comes after a long self-journey. Um, and I, I credit my therapy for that. Like, if I was not uh, working on myself and trying to understand it, I wouldn't be strong enough to say, hey. Uh, I'm not going to do this because then you feel like, okay, maybe I'm not enough. You know, those feelings of imposter syndrome creep in to just uh, push them aside. You need to feel comfortable with saying no. And that's, that's the internal work. So changing the culture place, definitely, but also doing the internal work to strengthen ourselves to say, hey, this is my limit. I, I just can't take it. Yeah, yeah, because it's also true, as you said, that we as individuals, we make up those cultures as well and vice versa. The cultures, the culture, work culture makes us and we make up part of the work culture. So it's in our hands to slow that down at least, even if we cannot change the whole thing at once can all bring in this awareness from different angles and then say, OK, openly talk about it as if this is not okay and if in a in a workplace or in an industry or in a, a community like academia if many people are having the same quote-unquote individual experience of burnout that is not an individual experience that is a societal issue okay. yeah well, so that's true yeah, indeed. As a, as a person who works with uh, individuals around burnout, I'm also, I face with that question a lot, but people say it's because of my workplace that I'm here and I'm in burnout. Well, yes. And there are also things that you can do, first of all, bringing yourself back up from that place. And then with that empowerment knowing that you have choice you decide mm -hmm. to go back to that same workplace or not you decide to have like which boundaries to put or not you you engage with that dysfunctional it may be a work culture in a way that you can at least 
preserve your health as much as possible before <laughs> taking on the whole system and uh, fixing everything right yeah, right that's true it's just it's hard when you're living in it and i i just want to assure i mean myself first and also other people who are experiencing and i think we should call it what it is first it's a systemic issue and when we call it that it's just um relieves people from that sort of blame saying okay this is on me to change it like takes a little bit of blame and people everyone needs to feel that this is not 100% our control it's as you said like both things interacting and we need to take a little responsibility but also don't forget that this is systemic so I think that kind of balance is important to empower people because when facing systemic issues like this, uh, like organizational burnout or, or bigger issues like racism, ageism, that kind of problems, societal issues, if we don't acknowledge their presence and we just tell people, hey, you just need to do some self-care, you know, you need to learn conflict management skills or communication skills or you need to meditate or you need to do this. It just puts a little too much responsibility, in my opinion. We need to first acknowledge that this is a problem and they are not to blame, but they have the power to change it, to, to like either take themselves out or stay in it, as you say, but like in a different shape or form. And that is a long journey. It needs company. And I'm glad you're helping people who are experiencing it too change their mindset, empower them so that they can find new ways to be in the same position if they want or just leave it, their choice. That too, yeah, thank you. Well, I am also, I can also say the same things about you having gone through the same thing. Well, I really hope that you will be in the future able to work with academics who need this kind of uh, help and support just like you you needed in the, in the past. Yeah. And uh, before we finish, if uh, <laughs> if possible, I would like to go back to the migration piece once again, because in our first conversation that was off the record, we talked a lot about it. We we, we exchange our experiences and all, and um, um, now that we are both here, we are migrants from Turkey in two different parts of the world. Um, maybe we can talk a bit more about our experiences and how we overcame those negative feelings that migration brought on us or not. Maybe it's not overcoming, right? For, for myself, I can say that I didn't overcome anything. I just learned to live with it. I, I was able to transform some of it. Um, but yeah, because I'm asking this because you mentioned in our previous uh, talk, this migrant experience as overwhelming, uh, life altering and traumatic at the same time. So if you don't mind sharing a bit more about that from uh, the angle of the United States and Canada, and maybe I can chip in with my experience from Belgium. Maybe we can help others in a similar situation to come to terms with the, the um, 
let's say, how widely experienced these feelings are as, as migrants in academic world. Wow, totally. Well, that's, that's a very noble goal. And I feel like I am like more than honored to be in a position where I can, um, I can, I guess, be an immigrant advocate or someone who has been through significant time living outside home country and having this experience and to validate the feelings of current immigrants, migrants, or people who are trying to, you know, do that uh, step. It's, it's a very tough thing to do. As you said, I, I name it as life altering. And when I was about to do this change, I knew it, it would entail a lot of things to shift, but I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't have known that this would be an experience that I would deconstruct my whole identity. Like that's how I experienced it. Like really deconstructing who I am, what I was told. And I see this like as a metaphor, I guess, like taking a plant from the soil that they grow, like planting it somewhere else, that plant needs to really adapt. Like you really need to deconstruct to your core and see how you can make it in this new environment, new culture. And that's a very um, tough experience to do. Like it, it doesn't matter when you do it in your twenties, thirties, but it's just, um, it changes the way you see the world. You don't have that kind of like culture around you, which is like the air you breathe. You don't even realize because you see everything through that culture. And when you change, everything is different and people function in a different way. And the sudden little things, like even mundane daily things, they're different. So you need to learn a lot of invisible things alongside with the technical, like logistic things like finding where to go to grocery shopping or just finding a doctor finding a tailor like the the um the fact that you don't have anyone like it also depends on the experience like me I didn't have any relatives in the U.S. it was me and my husband so we had to build right and not knowing anyone like very in a close way not knowing where to go um shopping or like going to a doctor like even little things I found it so overwhelming and I, I realized I didn't think much about it in the U.S. I just worked I just I was so immersed in my work and I felt like I didn't really have the time but in Canada now that I'm in a different position and it's, this is a different time I, I be more during the pandemic so things are really different things are slow things are closed so I really felt that kind of change even more strongly, like not having a network, not having people. Uh, it's just tough for a new immigrants. It's more than, I would say, speaking the language of the country. It's just that, um, that unspoken things that kind of hold you back and you have to face them over and over again, understanding, okay, this is the way people do things around here and I should better learn it to look and sound like them not that you would become a clone but to to feel comfortable in that culture and to be also accepted like to feel the belonging and as an immigrant that's 
I guess one of the things that I searched for for so long, like, where do I belong in this new culture? Do I even belong? Like, where? How? As, as whom? And when you ask those questions, sometimes the answer can be like <laughs> hard to swallow. And then now I'm asking them again in Canada, like, where do I belong? Where do I see myself as a future Canadian now that I'm permanently in this country? How do I want to be part of this society? How to give back? Like, and I see myself, I guess this is a circle back to where we started, like helping new immigrants to integrate, settle in this country in a less traumatic way, I would say. Like, find the network, find the support, and where can I be to facilitate those transitions? Like, I see myself hopefully being in these positions that I can assist. Because when I came like a year ago, I used a lot of those services and they were really helpful. Like when you don't know anything, those kind of services really matter. And Canada does a good job um, to, to have those supports for newcomers because this is a predominantly immigrant country, very multicultural, very diverse society. So Canada values immigrants and supports them. So I guess I would like to be in that position, supporting new immigrants and just easing that transition a little, you know. That's amazing to hear. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, it's also a bit, it also has to do with Canada being a, a country that welcomes and seeks immigrants and, uh, yeah, invites them on purpose, <laughs> unlike Belgium. <laughs> where things are very different in continental Europe. Uh, as a Turkish person, I can say that, you know, the, the, when people ask me, Aya, where are you from? I say, I'm from Turkey. Oh, first of all, they go like, oh. And then the second question is, is your family here? Because the, the um, mainstream image of Turkish migrant in Belgium is, someone who came in the 70s to work in the mines or in the textile sector, very lowly educated from lower socioeconomic status. And then these unwelcome guest workers who just stayed here and then, then had their like children, then second generation and third generation and all of that. So that's the second question. Is your family here? Oh no, my family is not here. Hmm, okay. So that, that's another thing that goes this this there is this uh label of Turkish in in um, Belgium, in Germany, I can imagine, and the Netherlands and in France maybe. So that's quite a different migration experience, I can tell. And uh, another one is language. Like you said, you guys, okay, it's not that big of a deal maybe, but everybody speaks English right here, the local languages. And in Belgium, we have two, well, and also three, but the German is not that, uh, German speaking community is not that big. So, but, migration experience wherever you go from what i understand from this conversation it's never easy even if you go to a country where migrants are very um 
wanted and welcomed and uh, highly educated migrants, especially like us, right? Um, it's just, I guess, the experience itself, like taking yourself from, from a place where you were someone. And maybe that someone, like usually people immigrate for different reasons. If, if it's not a refugee case, people immigrate like predominantly because of economic reasons, right? To have better options for themselves or their children. That's why they also came. So it's kind of having this idea like, okay, we are gonna have better options, but when you like move, like you, what, what happens to many Canadian immigrants is that they um, realize that there are systemic barriers. Like you were mentioning, like knowing the other languages in Belgium, let's say that's a systemic barrier that immigrants have to face and overcome. And here it's like the Canadian experience. Like if you do not have that experience under your belt, no matter how long you worked as, as a certain profession, in your own country, you can't work. And that kind of barrier really demoralizes people. It's just a huge stress. And I know a lot of doctors, nurses who cannot practice in Canada, no matter how skilled they are. So they're underemployed. Like they work as PSWs, peer support workers, or just administrative roles. And that kind of shift, no matter how supportive culture seems, and I would use the word quote-unquote seem here, um, it's very challenging to tackle those barriers and breaking the stereotypes. Like you mentioned, this is what a Turkish person is supposed to look like or behave like or come from. Like, what if not? What if you are um, out, outlier? Like, you're not the typical Turkish person. And like having that kind of discrimination, I would say, that's tough. That's we should call it what it is. It's discrimination against newcomers, and we should really eliminate those practices. Like Canadian experience barrier, for example, in Canada, it is uh, like started uh, in. It, it's been a decade since they started to address it systemically, and lately it's also again like under discussion because there's a huge labor shortage due to pandemic. And lots of internationally trained professionals are out of jobs or they're doing something else. So now Canada is really reconsidering to wave, like completely take it out so that the international professionals can work in their trained fields. So like it takes a long time to see through these changes, but I feel like um, it's on the way like breaking those barriers one at a time. And it happens very slowly. It's discouraging that it's so slow, but we need to be on it. We need to talk about it and address it in any way that we can. Yeah, so true. Thank you for yeah. saying that. <laughs> and yeah, I get to passionate about immigration issues. Yeah, I can talk all day. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe we should have another episode about that. <laughs> But thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Kumsal. It was so nice to talk with you. I am so impressed by your dedication to uh, helping people around their mental health and your openness uh, about sharing your own experiences. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Yeah, this 
My pleasure. Thank you. And last but not least, if people want to contact you, uh, mm -hmm. how can they do that? How can they find you? Do you have a, a website or a blog or, or uh, yeah, anything? Uh, I have a website, but it's under construction. So I wouldn't lead people to that. <laughs> but I am pretty active on LinkedIn. And, and I'm also active on Twitter. So people can reach me through those channels. Yeah. Okay. Now we have to chat with anyone about their immigrant experience or mental health journey. I'm not a mental health practitioner yet in Canada, but as you can see, I have a lot of thoughts about mental health and how things should be and how I can contribute to make things better. So I'm always open to meeting new people, listening to their stories. Amazing. Thank you. So I will I will also link your LinkedIn and Twitter link to the show notes of the of the podcast when it's um, aired. So thank you so much. It was great to have you on Mind Your Own Revisions. And until next time. Yes. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you did. Be sure to follow Mind Your Own Revisions on social media and subscribe to my newsletter at mindyourownrevisions.com for weekly nuggets on well-being. Please also review this podcast on iTunes so that other academics can also find it. Until next time, bye!